Well, folks, we've arrived at our next to our last session. I know it's hard to believe, but uh, we'll finish up next week. We're going to celebrate by having lunch at our house. Just want to remind you again that um, we're right around the corner and have a nice afternoon. I'm hoping some of the elders and their wives will join us. So we're working on that as well. So really looking forward to having that time with you and. This is looking pretty good for guests now, so <laughs> praise the Lord. So, hey, Tony and May, morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the fact that you're the God of peace, and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly that included us, and he's made peace between uh, us sinners and you, holy God, and that uh, there's no condemnation for we who are in Christ Jesus. And because he has done this work in us, we are able to be peacemakers with others. As we tackle this important value today and consider what it means to be reconcilers and peacemakers in your church, in our homes, in all our relationships, pray that you would, as always, be our first and foremost teacher. In Jesus' name. All right, tab six today, page 91. Now, if you were in resolving everyday conflict last trimester in the equipping hour, then this will be something of a review. But um, if you were not, uh, for, any, for any variety of reasons, um, this is an important session uh, in as much as uh, one thing every church has is conflict because every church is made up of sinners saved by grace who deal with remaining sin. And Satan, of course, is constantly on the move to see who he can divide and destroy, and the church is his target. Uh, if it's true that they'll know we are Christians by our love, John 13, then if we can be perceived to be unloving in the way we treat one another, particularly in the Church of Jesus Christ, then um, he has a heyday. And the world has a right. Francis Schaeffer, the final apologetic, and that's familiar with little books he wrote about the church in the eyes of a watching world. It's, the world has a right to judge. If we fail to be anything but Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, eager to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. As you know from reading our history, you've had a chance to look at that little one-page part in the beginning of the notebook. Um, our letter race has an unfortunate history of two church splits. By God's grace, we've been about one since 2002. It's been my hope and passion effort to, to see to the degree that we can control it. Can't always do that. But that we would remain, not no church is conflict-free, but without another major meltdown, if I could put it that way. And God's been gracious to us, and I, I certainly hope that that will remain the case as the church moves into the future. So, but obviously this has practical application in every relationship, uh, immediate family, extended family, neighbors, workplace, because we're always dealing with people, and people have issues. Some of us have more <laughs> than others, but um, we want to gain the blessedness of being peacemakers. So we have couched this value as one of grace-oriented community. Love for one another characterized on the page, top of page 91. Love for one another characterized by biblical peacemaking and merciful burden-bearing uniquely designates the people as devoted followers of Jesus Christ and keeps them connected to one another for vital ministry. Therefore, we will consistently strive to manifest grace in all the relationships in at least two ways. One, and here's where we'll put the emphasis today, vigilantly guarding the peace and purity of the body through practicing the full spectrum of biblical conflict resolution from overlooking offenses when appropriate, Proverbs 19.11, <coughs> to 
to church discipline as necessary, 1 Corinthians 5, and two, gently restoring those who fall and helping heal those who hurt through administering biblically-based counseling, Galatians 6. Please note, we are indebted to Ken Sandy and the staff of Peacemaker Ministries for the following content. This uh, graphic at the bottom of page 91 is used by permission. I would like you to take out right now this uh, handout. I know it is in your notebook because you mistook it for another one that I was wanting you to grab, which is the reason I don't have a copy, by the way, of the equipping hour. This is currently under revision. We don't have a current um, version, but I've got Sunday working on the existing one just so you can see the wide range of course offerings in that. But this right here is what I want to draw your attention to. You should each have one in the front flap of your, or back flap, either one of the notebooks. And if you open it up to the inside, you'll see a much more attractive color version of the um, slippery slope. There you go. <coughs> um, <coughs> that describes a, uh, a big picture of the peacemaking challenge. All right. Uh, by the way, uh, I strongly encourage you to hold on to this. Uh, take it, put it in your Bible or keep it somewhere handy. Um, how many of you are familiar with a Swiss Army knife? Anybody know what a Swiss Army knife is? I, I, anybody have uh, the largest Swiss Army knife, world's record Swiss Army knife? How many implements are in the Swiss Army knife? Anybody know? No, there's over a hundred different items now. You can't carry it in your pocket, but <laughs> you can look it up. It's pretty impressive, okay? Why is he suddenly talking about tools? Well, this is the Swiss Army knife of peacemaking. All the essentials of Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker, uh, which I highly recommend to you, one of the top five extra-biblical resources that I've used in pastoral ministry ever since becoming familiar with it. The book, Resolving Everyday Conflict, which is available, both these resources are available in the Resource Center, is kind of like the Reader's Digest condensed version of Ken's book, The Peacemaker. And then the content of both of those has been distilled, boiled down into this fourfold fire. All right. So all the essentials, all the acronyms, the main content, four Gs, are right here. The slope is helpful because the goal always in peacemaking is to climb off the slope, climb up the slope into peacemaking responses of which there are two kinds, individual, there's no blank yet to fill in, don't worry about that, individual and assisted. Truth is that most of us tend to fall off the slope in one of two ways. Either we do what I call peace shaking, which is the blue side to the left on your diagram, or peace breaking, the red side. As you can see, there are a variety of different ways that we do escape responses, denial, flight, ultimately suicide, we run from conflict. I don't know if anybody else relates, this is, this is my MO of choice, okay? I learned this at an early age, growing up in the home I grew up in. Hate conflict, we'll do almost anything to avoid it. And that's part of the reason why God made me a pastor, because I've had to learn how to deal with conflict. On the other end of the spectrum are attack responses, assault. Typically in our culture, though obviously there are uh, examples of literal physical assault, but we use our words primarily. Proverbs describes them like sword thrusts to hurt and to wound. Litigation, taking somebody to court, ultimately homicide or murder. So, <coughs> not, not that you can't do both, but these are kind of the ways that we break peace either by running from it or bulldozing somebody. The goal is to climb up on the slope and have peacemaking responses, which is always a choice that we have. The personal responses, 
on the left side of the diagram, overlooking reconciliation and negotiation, basically boiled down to one thing. If somebody offends you and you can't overlook it, go talk to them. Have a conversation. Don't go talking to your neighbor. Don't gossip. Have a conversation. And generally start it with a question. You know what happened there? Um, can you help me understand what that was all about? You may not know. <laughs> and have a conversation. That's what the idea behind reconciliation. Negotiation is about substantive issues that can come up, like somebody owes you money, working out a way to settle that. But reconciliation normally has to do with personal offenses that can't be overlooked, and you've got to try to close the gap, heal the breach. Now, in instances where that fails, assisted peacemaking, mediation, where you employ somebody that helps you try to come to an agreement. Arbitration is when a panel of people, this again is often when there are substantive issues like a property dispute, monies of where mediation perhaps has not worked. And so three experts in the field come in, hear the arguments, and then they make a ruling, and both parties agree in advance, we're going to abide by that ruling. And then ultimately, if necessary, if we're doing this in a robust, comprehensive, full-orbed way, and it becomes necessary, um, particularly when we're involved with believers in our church, we have the accountability of the church that's been entrusted with the keys of the kingdom to do church discipline when there's a failure to repent, a habitual sin. We'll talk at length about that. But that's the big picture of what we're talking about here. The vision is to be a peacemaking people that are climbing up on the slope, saying no to peace faking, running from conflict, um, saying no to peace breaking, climbing up on the slope to be peacemakers. We have worked hard here at making this a value. You're coming into a church that, that feels this is absolutely crucial in terms of, again, our testimony to the world, but to the shalom, the peace, the welfare of the church. And we are charged to do our very best at this. Now, the story that's unfolded here has allowed me to have the privilege to write a book for Baker's book that's coming out in November called The Peacemaking Church. And the core verse that my whole book is built around is Ephesians 4, 3, where Paul says, in chapter 4, sorry, 4, 3, in verse 1, he says, as prisoners of the Lord and called with this calling, we're to act a certain way that ultimately is eager to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The word eager in Philippians, uh, Ephesians 4.3 is the same word that Paul uses in 2 Timothy 2.15 when he said, do your best to a pastor to present yourself as one approved, um, handling accurately the word of truth. Do your best, eager, same, same Greek word. So whatever you're going to do as a part of Orlando Grace is to stay here there are certain things you want to do your best at. The vision I'm trying to cast for you here is when conflict comes, we're going to do our best to be peacemakers, to guard the unity of the church and not break it. So, um, <coughs> with that, turn to page 92. And let's talk about a, um, a different kind of definition to conflict. Top of page 92, conflict is a difference in opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goal and desire. The difference 
an opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. All conflict comes disguised as a threefold opportunity to glorify God by trusting, obeying, imitating, and acknowledging Him, to serve others by loving them and maintaining a spiritual example, to grow, to be like Christ by drawing on His grace to practice new attitudes and habits. Glorify God. Love and serve others. And to grow in Christ's likeness. This is a lot easier to say than it is to do when somebody steps on your toes with both feet. When there's a difference that's of such a magnitude that it creates hurt, a wound, and a separation. This definition attempts to convey a theology of conflict but does not see it, although none of us obviously look forward to it, but to see it from God's perspective. It is an opportunity to glorify him. It is an opportunity to love and serve someone. And it certainly is an opportunity to grow in Christ's <coughs> likeness. I would venture to say that most of my, I mean, the Lord's used a variety of things to promote my sanctification like we were talking about last week. But I don't know that too many things have been more effective than conflict. Whether with it in marriage, kids, church, neighbors with dogs barking at 3 a.m., pick your poison. This is a key way to look at it. We're going to talk today um, in terms of being peacemakers <coughs> and climbing up onto the slippery slope whenever possible. Uh, the rubric or pattern that Ken's written in the books, I think, is uh, an excellent way to think about uh, being a peacemaker. So, and it's one of the things I enjoy about Ken's writing is uh, everything's an acronym, so nothing's easy to remember. The four G's. Four G's are a pop quiz around here periodically, and they are glorify God. Just give me the overview here. Get the log out of your own eye. Gently restore. Or go and be reconciled. Glorify God. Get the log out. Gently restore. Go and be reconciled. Every time I'm in a conflict. This is the ladder, the rubric, the pattern through which I run my thoughts and my praying. And I commend it to you as a way to do conflict resolution when you encounter it. So, as you see, we seek to practice the four G's of conflict resolution, starting with first bullet point, glorify God. The most important question you must ask at the outset of any conflict is, how can I please and honor God? How can I please and honor God in this situation? This is the vertical trajectory. It is where you must start if you're going to survive the conflict in a way that causes you to come out with a clean conscience, regardless of how well it ends. And it doesn't always end well. Had conflicts here, no matter how hard we try and labor, there still can be a Paul and Barnabas like sharp disagreement where people go their separate ways. It just is reality. But you can control whether you take responsibility for um, whatever my opponent, if you can use that word, does. I'm going to take responsibility for me with the help of the Holy Spirit 
and honor the Lord in the way I go about dealing with this? That is the most important question. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, including conflict resolution, do all to the glory of God. You and I are on the hook for that. So often in conflict, our minds immediately go to what the other person is doing or not doing. Rather than stopping and saying, okay, Lord, I don't want to be in this mess. You're sovereign. <laughs> Nothing comes into my life that doesn't pass through your hands first, right? We're, we, we covered before in theology, right? God's in control. Even the simple actions of people, he uses for my good. So, all right, what do you require of me? The scriptures call us to the priority of his name. Someone like to read Romans 12, please. Verse 18. the answer to it again? As far as it depends upon you. Be peaceable. Live peaceably with all. Jesus pronounced the blessedness of peacemaking as an evidence of God's work in a disciple's life. Matthew 5, 9. Another reader, please. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I mean, just think about here Jesus in the economics of the kingdom, the Beatitudes, comes to this one and says, if you want the label son of God, child of God, to legitimately stick to you, you have to be a peacemaker. It's a defining characteristic. You pursue peace. You press into conflict redemptively. You, you don't run from it or blow it up. Happy are you if you're that kind of Christian. And let's face it, we've all met and maybe have been ourselves the opposite. And it's just such a terribly painful thing. I've alluded to this already, but Christ's reputation depends somewhat. Jesus is perfectly able to take care of his own reputation. All right? um, but there is a reality here that is affected. His reputation depends upon a devotion to peacemaking in the body. In the John 13, 34, and 35 text, I've already love for one another and peacemaking is a very evident manifestation of love top of page 93 a determination to glorify God in peacemaking acknowledges his sovereignty in bringing conflict into our lives I've been working on this very passage in Genesis this past week as I'm working on my final message in the book and is there, a, is there a better example of this than Joseph? Would someone read Genesis 15, 19 to 21? Remember the, the context? Jacob died. And now the brothers, Joseph's brothers, who sold him into slavery, are worried daddy's not here to protect us. So they fabricate a story and say, hey, dad said that you're supposed to treat us well. We're your servants. Joseph weeps because he's been kind to them. He's forgiven them. And they somehow think it won't stick. And so here's what Joseph says in response in Genesis 15, 19, 21. Someone please. Uh, Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, bringing about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. What an incredible statement. Actually, a question. Don't fear. Am I in the place of God? Peace breakers 
who cannot forgive, bear grudges, and judge are taking God off the throne and making themselves judge. Romans 12, leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, I'll repay. Joseph does not minimize the evil of his brothers, but he refuses to stand in the place of God to punish and judge them for that. Incredibly important perspective about glorifying God. God is not glorified. Now, there are issues related to forgiveness and, and consequences and restoration. We'll talk about those. I'm, I don't want you to think we're not being naive about them. But there, there is a place to recognize there is only one judge and lawgiver who will repay injustices. I cannot afford the um, the what's the word I'm looking for? <coughs> I can't afford this this unforgiving, uncharitable spirit that other sinners who even sin greatly against me. Glorify God. Pretty straightforward. The vertical trajectory. Comments? Questions? Well, I'll go back to one thing you said talking about the reputation. Uh huh. Um, I mean, one thing that scarred the Christian's reputation was the Crusades. Yes. Everybody always looks back to that, and it was done. By, I mean, by the Catholic Church, but nevertheless, it scars the name of Absolutely. being a Christian because people yeah. always say, "Well, look at the Christians did, you know, Crusades." Yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. Long time ago, but nevertheless, it's sure. still brought up. Sure. Major scars. Yeah. Well, Martin Luther's so many contributions, right? Right. But his anti-Semitism. Right. I will hear from Jewish people. Sure. And I, you have, you know, you're right. Right. You know, what was he thinking? Right. Well, he had massive blind spots like the rest of us, but, right. Right. Um, you know, so, yeah, it, it that's a great example from church history about what we're talking about. Two, get the log out of your own eye. Get the log, well, I've got it right here. Get the log out of your own eye. Here is Jesus teaching about judging others, a critical spirit. In Matthew 7, 3 to 5, here's the bullet point, the second most important question you must ask in a conflict is how can I show Jesus' work in me by taking responsibility for my contribution to this conflict? If the glorify God is the vertical trajectory, then get the law out of your own eye is the internal trajectories. Doing an inventory. I love how Tim Pollard will say in the Resolving Everyday Conflict training, you may only be 2% responsible for a conflict with somebody else, but you're 100% responsible for your 2%. Mm -hmm. All right? Jesus teaching, Matthew 7, 3 to 5. How about another reader, please? Why do you see the speck that is in the brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now that word log, I want you to think rafter, or ever seen a railroad tie? I mean, I, I'll bet that the Jews on the mountain while Jesus was doing this were just laughing hysterically and feeling the pain of it inside because, you know, compared to a speck of dust or a piece of chaff, a railroad tie, you know, I'm trying to imagine you got, I wish I had, if a railroad tie wasn't so heavy or a two by six fur rafter, I'd, I'd go over there, I have a conflict going on with Jan and she's got a speck in her eye. And I'm going over there and I'm trying to figure it out with thing in my eye. I'm going to do a lot of damage, right? First, take the log out of your own eye. This is so hard to do. Is it not our first reaction? 
Can you believe what she said? Can you believe what she did? She said, she said. And we go right for the spec. When the log in our own eye either may have helped cause that or is part of the reaction. And glorifying God starts with, you know what? I'm going to own my contribution. And I'm going to start there when I sit down and do the third view. Dear ones, I, the, the benefit of, not that you would ever want to be manipulative, this needs to be genuine, but the preemptory reconciliation that comes by, you know, sweetie, I know we need to talk about X, but I recognize that my words were harsh and I hurt you in the way I responded. And I really regret that. Would you forgive me? So I just have to, I've taken this massive log out of my eye and, and sought forgiveness before I then go for the speck about whatever the issue might have been. This is what Jesus is after. You don't ignore the speck. You still have a responsibility, but you take responsibility first for the law. Remember that attitude is everything. How's that for a generalization? Great passage in Philippians 4, 1 and 2, And three, Paul talks about two women in the church. Great names, Euodia and Syntyche. Ever met a Euodia or a Syntyche? Two rock stars. He says, they uh, labored side by side with me in the gospel, along with Clement. I mean, these, these were terrific servants. And they're in a feud in the church at Philippi. How would you love to get a letter from an apostle that's read to the whole congregation and your names are called out? That's how these, these letters were read to the congregation together. Whoever yoke fellow, true companion, I think he's talking about a mediator, may have been Epaphroditus, um, help these two ladies get along. All right? We all... Look at that, yeah, that's about peacemaking, that's about mediating, but we don't often connect it to what follows. Can somebody read verses 4 through 9 first? Rejoice in the Lord always, again I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Can you connect the dots? from four, one to three. Hey, sisters, get along. I'm putting true companion on the chat. It's peacemaking. And then verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Glorify God. Verse five, let your reasonableness be known to all. Sweet, re be easy to get along with. Not easily offended. Be reasonable in the way you engage. And be thankful and don't worry about anything. Again, the context is conflict, but in everything with prayer and thanksgiving. Let your request be known, and so on and so forth. See, Paul goes from, here's this conflict, and wanting these women to get help, and says, and here's the kind of attitudinal realities that have to be going on in you to deal with it, and it gets a lot out of your own I kind of fashion. 
Um, let's go ahead to the next bullet point on page 94. You can piece together those other blanks from Joyce and the Lord. Always, you just look at the text. They, you can fill those in on your own. Finally, examine your heart for any contribution you have made. Examine your heart for any contribution that you have made to the conflict. I have a reader in James 4 Mark. Answer? That's a rhetorical question. What does Paul want us to say? Uh, James wants to say, Paul didn't write this. James said. The answer is? Yeah, yeah right. <coughs> there are heart issues, <coughs> conflicts. Uh, Calvin refers to the heart as an idol making factory. The passions that drive us are behind the conflicts that we have. There's a marvelous progression in Peacemaker. I don't have here. In the book, but I want to go in in, the, in his book, but I think it's absolutely right. Conflict often starts with a desire. Maybe a maybe a good desire. Jan wants to take the baby grand piano to Idaho. I don't want to take the baby. That's not true. I'm making this up. I'm happy to take the baby grand, right? But I'm not lifting that thing. All right. We'll pay a couple of hundred bucks to have somebody tear it apart and put it up. But isn't that, okay, you have this desire, this person has this desire, they're, they're frustrated, they're not meeting, and so your goal is blocked. What happens in conflict often, where it gets off the rails, and we're no longer functioning in a way that is glorifying God, is the desire turns into a demand. Gotta have this for my own sense of welfare, well-being, and happiness. And then when I don't get it from whomever, that then becomes a judgment that I make about that person so unkind, so unfair, so selfish. And then I end up punishing either by mistaking and here uh, I must say, you know, I, I write really candidly about this in the book. You know, I've learned how to. I've learned. I learned how to punish Nancy so effectively. And never in my lifetime did I raise my voice to my wife. I not raise my voice to this woman. But I'm telling you how much I hurt Nancy over and over again by the cold shoulder and the jaw. I I mastered the art of moving around a relatively small kitchen when I was mad with her without touching her and being stone cold silent. Really terrible. Oh, how many times I had to repent. Look, just didn't, I did not see the wickedness of my own heart that was punishing her. And I had to repent over and over again. We, we laughed, but you know, when Jan and I you know, got mad, I said, you know, when you get to heaven and, and Nancy and you compare notes, you're going to have to really thank her for how many of the rough edges, not all of them, basically, <laughs> how many of the rough edges got <laughs> chipped away and sandpapered and, not sandpapered, that's way too mild a metaphor. <laughs> they jackhammered away. And I just <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Okay, but I digress. Uh, can I just say one thing? Sure. Uh, Tell them I'm much better. No, 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 no. <laughs> not really anything about you. Oh, bummer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Punishment 
to me, I think I was there many times through my life, and I would hide that under, I'm just hurt. Uh, uh-huh. I'm just hurt. Uh-huh. But really what I was doing uh-huh. was what you say, the cold shoulder and it's, I'm not going to talk to you, I'm not going to touch you because I'm just hurt. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of think, why am I so hurtful? Right. Um, mm-hmm. And only the Holy Spirit can show somebody who's doing that, this is what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's all about <coughs> having a, an understanding of Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all else. Who can know it? And being suspect of that heart. And when the Lord convicts you, then practice confession, is our next slide, of the sin of sins God reveals to you. Practice confession. Another great acronym in Peacemaker is the seven A's of confession. Let me just hammer these out real quickly with you. Address everyone involved. In other words, the confession should be as broad as the offense. No more, no less. Avoid if, but, maybe. My friend David Simplex called these abortive confessions when you start yeah, I know, I lost my temper, but if you had been more sensitive, <laughs> that's not helpful. Avoid that. Admit specifically, I was selfish in my demand, whatever, not just general. Acknowledge the hurt. The more egregious the offense, the more important that can be. Accept the consequences. There may very well be some. Again, the more egregious the offense. Alter your behavior. With God's help, obviously, the power of the gospel. And finally, ask for forgiveness and allow for time. Sometimes people need some time before they can grant forgiveness. Question about get the log out of your own life. All right. Three, gently restore. Third G. The third important question you must ask in a conflict is how can I lovingly serve others by helping them take responsibility for their contribution to this conflict? Glorify God, vertical. Get the law out of the own line, internal. Gently restore and go and be reconciled, external or horizontal. Both these last two talk about now how you deal with somebody else and their sin, their speck. Galatians 6.1 is a key text. May I have a reader? Brothers, if anyone is caught in any kind of transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Each watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And I don't know why I don't have verse 2. Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Peacemaking is a bearing of the sinful burdens that others have in their lives and fulfilling the law of love that is in Jesus Christ. Restoration. You who are spiritual, restore in a spirit of gentleness. So much packed into Galatians 6.1. There is a process that Jesus outlines in Matthew 18. You're probably familiar with it. Uh, We're going to take a quick look at it here before we finish up. Another reader, please. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. If a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my heavenly Father. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I alone among them. Hmm. Thank you. Where do we normally like to quote verse 20, by the way? 
if you've been around the church for any length of time, where two or three are gathered, there I am among them. Where do we like to float that? Prayer meeting where nobody comes to, right? As long as we have two or three, Jesus is here. It's all right. Context here, church discipline. Keys of the kingdom. Deciding who gets put out when it's necessary, however painful that might be. I want you to see five steps. You might be counting out the same, but you see there's only four. I'm going to make one implicit. Step one, overlook minor offenses. Overlook minor offenses. Proverbs 19.11 says, glory to a man to overlook. It's glorious. Can you, can you wrap your heart around that? Not being easily offended is a glorious gospel trait. Don't be easily offended. Overlook whenever and as much as you possibly can. Make a charitable judgment. Give somebody the benefit of the doubt. Didn't get a good breakfast. Had a rough night's sleep. Got stuff going on I don't know about. It's not that big a deal. I can Overlooking is choosing to forgive without a peacemaking conversation. Now be careful. Don't do that in the name of peacemaking when you really shouldn't be overlooking. The offense is a pattern. It's a kind of something that has a lot of impact upon others. There are certain things that you, you have to deal with. But whenever you can, overlook. Where does Jesus start? Step two, talk in private. Brother says against you. Go to him. The emphasis is on in private. Why is that important? And what's Jesus protecting? The Say again? The sanctity of the body, like going out and. Right. You, the, there's the pace of the rest of the body is at, at risk there. And he's guarding the, the confidentiality. You keep the circle as close <coughs> as you possibly can for as long as you can. There's just no reason to be broadcasting because that plays to our delight in gossip. Those whispering tales. It's just such a fun thing to do and so, to our flesh, so counterproductive. If that fails, step three, take one or two others so that every fact can be confirmed Again, you're keeping the circle small. In the case that that fails, then even tell it to the truth. Apply the word accountability is used. Paul is so serious about this, by the way. In 1 Corinthians 6, he says it's a shame for believers to take other believers to the courts outside of the church to solve disputes. The place to do that is within the church. And in the case of habitual, unrepentant sin that somebody is not willing to deal with, then it's incumbent upon the church to own that and for that person to be put out of the church. Step five, when that happens, you treat that person as a non-believer. that's the essence of what Jesus is saying. Let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Somebody's on the outside that needs to be warned. Now, this will often serve to generate a number of issues and questions, particularly for somebody that's been involved in a church where it's been abused. And I know what that's like. More often today, Churches aren't doing this for the complications and um, difficulties and for any number of reasons. You need to know that this is something we take seriously. In my, just to give you some perspective, in my journey here of 15 years, we've done three, if you want to use the term, excommunications three names that we continue to pray for at our board meetings. 
and they have been among the most excruciatingly difficult parts of being a pastor. Um, we have done one restoration of someone who had been put out in, a, in the previous administration. He came to me and I didn't even know the story. And she shared it with me and we dug into the details and we were able to restore her. We had a service entirely devoted to that. Still one of the highlights of my 15 years here. Um, when that sister was lovingly embraced in the Second Corinthians too, forgiveness it was over sexual immorality. So that, it was just so sweet. I um, would love the three others that um, have been in that same category would turn out as well eventually. Um, what we understand, just so you know, well, let me say this one. If you will be committed to peacemaking, in a way where you do steps one, two, and three regularly, we hardly ever get to step four. Most peacemaking is on this more private, individual, and mediation kind of approach. Occasionally, the church has to be involved. What does that look like here? Here's how, and Jesus does not give you the, doesn't give you the details, all right? So each church has to kind of figure that out on its own. For us, it starts with the elders, who are servant representatives of the congregation. And we are the ones, after the first three steps, who get involved with someone. And it can often be multiple times, all right? In the instance where an offense, an issue, moral, doctrinal, uh, again, something that this is key, there's no shred of repentance. I want to do what I want to do. In the instance of the last excommunication we had to do, it was over unlawful divorce. Her husband remained in the congregation as here to this day and walked through that whole painful process. Did the accountability with his wife, who had left, launched and stopped talking to us. We had, we had to do this for her sake, First Corinthians 5, deliver over Satan for destruction of the flesh that the soul might be saved. Keys of the kingdom being applied. After all the entreaties of the elders and an apparent inability to have a breakthrough, then we have a members only, and here's where you understand, the, I would hope, the importance of membership. I'm going to talk about how to pursue membership next week. There's a covenant you sign that has a stipulation in it that says if for some reason I become involved in sinful behavior contrary to the scriptures, I am giving my informed consent that this church will come to me in love, spirit of gentleness, to pursue my restoration. Right. So this is always a members-only family meeting kind of conversation that we have, where the membership is informed that so-and-so, covenant member, has now gotten to the point where we're pursuing this restoration on a church-wide basis. Number one, pray for the person, and number two, especially, the more you have a personal relationship with him or her, the more we're asking you to try to engage and call them to repentance and to meet with the elders and to try to work this thing out. Usually will be a substantial period of time where the body is given a chance to do that. All the proper communications in letter form are given to the party so that they know what the timetable is. If there's still not one, then we'll have another family meeting and it's reported that we're now effectively removing this person from the roles and they are under church discipline. You are to treat them as an unbeliever to win, as you would any other unbeliever. But don't, First Corinthians 5 says, don't pretend to be having normal fellowship like you would be with another Christian that you're in community with. That's a dreadfully brief description of the process here. Um, questions? 
Yes, sir. Um, I know that this section of members of the Dalai Lama is most important, and it is a very big blessing. Mm -hmm. should, and it should be looked at as a blessing to members. That's just how the church takes care of things. But uh, for your instance and the Swiss churches, how does this respond to non-members? Because you can hold members accountable, but how is this, or how is this church, how is the members supposed In to the instance of a person that is a non-member and won't sign a covenant, then they're, first we're trying to say, okay, how can we help you come into the membership? And if not, how can we help you find a church where you will do that? If not, and there are some people that are perpetually that way, then the next step is to say, all right, you won't sign a covenant, but for you to be able to be here, we need you to sign a statement saying that you get, you're giving us informed consent. You say you're a believer, you're not willing to submit to the covenant. We can't, we're not going to trespass you, but we do require you to have this signed statement that says, I do give you permission. And if you can't do that, I don't know, I don't know what we do. I, you know, I'll throw dust in the air, put on sackcloth, and die. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, good grief. If I go off the rails, God forbid, and think something is sweeter than being married to this woman or the one I was married to before, I want the elders of this church camped on my doorstep saying, Heffelfinger, what in the world are and holding me to account. I don't trust myself. That's the main reason I'm a church member. And we'll maintain our membership here until we transfer to a church in Idaho or be accountable to the leadership here for my actions, our actions as covenant members. I don't ever want to be without that covenant. I don't ever want to be without that. God's given the keys to the kingdom to the church for the whole church's protection and for mine? That's a great question. And it's reminding me that there are some folks here that we need to do that with. A hard conversation to have. Other questions? We're going to save the fourth pew till next week. Sir? Yes, sir. And this was written in 1918. Uh huh. What was the attitude of the believers? to the tax collectors and such. When Paul came into being uh, into prominence, the Gentiles were looked at differently. Well, I think Jesus is using Gentile in the way that a Jew of the day would have understood. Somebody outside the commonwealth of Israel, someone who was not, not a privileged member of God's people and needing to be converted, <coughs> needing to be one. Now, clearly, there were issues in the church and among the Jews of, uh, you know, Gentiles were dogs, and a, a racist kind of ethnic um, ugliness in sin that was a part of those relationships. Clearly, the gospel informs in Ephesians 2 and 3, and Paul would Paul promoted a, an understanding that Jesus is a great peacemaker which brought down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. And so we don't see people that way and we want to therefore win the outsider. So it's just, you know, Jesus' mindset was a, a love for those who are on the outside and, and demonstrated on a regular basis. I think that's the way he's using that when he's talking about that's the way you, you, you relate now to somebody. You don't relate to them. It's the opposite of relating to them like you do. Like when, when you guys come over for lunch last next week, we're going to be believers having a feast together. Somebody that's been put out of the church can't be in that kind of setup. You can't afford to send the message to them. You don't, you're not rude. You don't see them at the mall, if you go to the mall anyway, um, and run the other direction. You engage and say, Oh my, how I miss you. Is there any way you'd be open to pursuing reconciliation? Um, you just can't pretend that it's business as it was before because certain um, non-negotiables have been compromised. All right, we've got to stop. I'll, I'll be happy to pick up some more questions about this next week. Lord, um, we thank you for your church, that you entrusted the keys to the kingdom here.
and that the people of God have a hand in it. It's just a sobering responsibility. We thank you now that we have an opportunity to come to corporate worship. Lord, lift our eyes up. Help us to have a renewed vision of you. Thank you that you are a God who wrestles with us and rids us of our self-reliance. We ask you to manifest yourself in our midst today in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, reminder, we have lunch next Sunday at the church. Uh, you don't have to bring anything, but if you want to, we just see the social secretary, and she'll be happy to give you an assignment. We would love to have you. All right, God bless. Thanks so much.